This afternoon, uh, we begin a new series. I'm still letting go of the fact that we finished the book of Hebrews. Uh, I told the men on the uh, fire call on Saturday that I felt like I've said goodbye to one who's become a very old friend. <laughs> but now we'll be moving on to the book of Jonah. As you remember, uh, before I came here, Keith, during the summers, was doing a minor prophet series, and we continued that a little bit in Obadiah, and I thought it would be beneficial to, again, continue to look at the minor prophets, with Jonah being next. If you don't know where the book of Jonah is, the book of Jonah is after the book of Obadiah. If you don't know where, the, where, where that is, it's before the book of Micah. Or you can look in your table of contents and turn to the appropriate page number. There's no shame in having to look in the table of contents to find something. So, As we enter the book of Jonah, this being a short book, let's go ahead and just hear the entire story so we can have everything in context. We're going to read the whole thing just this this one time is the opening thing, and then we'll get into uh, today's message, which will be an introduction overview and looking at the opening scene. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship, and into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon you. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And uh, And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to feign idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of this, would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it uh, come over, up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <clears throat> but 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let us pray. Father, we thank you thus for your word. And for this account of the prophet Jonah. And as we begin this study and this walk through this book, we ask that you would lead us in your truth. We pray you would guide this preacher, chain him to the text of your word, so we might freely declare truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding, with a conviction that it is true. Would you work in each of our hearts, speak to us from your word today, by your spirit. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, this is a, a new study, walking through the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, just reading it, we can get an idea of the basic structure of the book. It is a, even though it is a prophet and it has prophetic utterances in it, it is in, a form, it is in the form of what we call a narrative. That's a story. And just as in any story, doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's a, a biblical story or whether it's a, another story you're familiar with, there's some basic elements to storytelling that are common across cultures in that you have the setting up of some sort of a conflict. You have the progression of that conflict. You have the, uh, the clima- climatic element, uh, element of that conflict. And then you have the resolution to that conflict. Four basic elements of uh, of a narrative, and we see in the open. We see first of all that this is broken up into four different base. Those four basic different movements. We see first of all the conflict is set up in that Jonah was called to go do something. He was called by God to go to Nineveh and prophesy against them. And the first part is we see Jonah's reluctance to do that. That's the whole conflict is Jonah's reluctance to go and prophesy to uh, against Nineveh. The whole being swallowed up by the whole him being swallowed by the fish is part of that conflict. That's not actually the main part of the story. The main part of the story is Jonah's being called to go do this and his reluctance to do so and why he was he was reluctant to do it and why God called him to do it. The second part of it, we see how Jonah was restored to that original calling, the progression of that conflict. In the third, in the third part of the movement, we see the resol- we see the climactic element of that conflict, in that Jonah went into Nineveh and he proclaimed the word of the Lord. And we see the resolution of this conflict, much to Jonah's dismay in that 
he had remorse at what he had done because he didn't get the result he wanted, which we'll talk about as we walk through the book. But we see how God, we see something about this. And when we look in this story of Jonah, while the in the narrative Jonah is the main character, just as in all of Scripture, this is not fundamentally about Jonah. This is telling us something about the character of the God who called Jonah. It is also, because we'll talk about it as a reference in a moment, a, a type of the telling of the story of Christ on our behalf. There's been much debate about Jonah over the years, whether or not this book is historical, whether or not this is actual history. Uh, there are those who argued, especially uh, getting into the 18th century, towards the end of the 18th century, who would argue that uh, this is too fantastical of a story for it to be an actual historical event. I mean, who gets swallowed by a fish and then who comes out of the fish and is alive? Looking at just nat- naturalistic thinking. However, if we are, if we, that is nothing more than a story or a parable of sorts in order to make a point to teach us something. It is indeed a story, and, we'll, and as we'll see in a moment, it is a historical story that is for the purpose of making a teaching a point, but it is an historical event, the, uh, the, the relaying historical events. In both the book of Matthew and the book of Mark, Jesus himself refers to Jonah and the events of this book as historical. And so if we are going to say that, and we'll reference the verse in a moment, but if we are going to say that this didn't actually happen, that it is nothing more than a fictional parable or a fairy tale to teach us a lesson, then we are undermining the words of Jesus and undermining our Savior. Interestingly enough, many of those who would say Jonah is not historical oftentimes would have great respect for the words of Jesus. And so they would be undermining those words. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and following, here Jesus says, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They were asking him for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus regards Jonah as an historical figure and he regards those events as historical and ties them to his own death and resurrection. So so essentially, if Jonah is not historical, Jesus is undermining his own prophetic utterance of his death and resurrection. If we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we believe in the historicity of of this book. <clears throat> There's also the archaeological testimony. 
Although it is no longer present because it was blown up in 2013 or 2014, in Mosul, in Iraq, which is the modern site of Nineveh, there was an ancient site that pre-existed Christianity and was a memorial. It was uncovered as part of an archaeological um, expedition, but it was called the, the Yunus tomb, or the tomb of Jonah. And it was a tomb and a memorial to someone named Yunus, which in ancient Akkadian roughly translates to Jonah in Hebrew. Meaning that it could very well be the Ninevites, because of their deliverance at that time, made a memorial to the one who declared to them the impending judgment. After Christianity and Assyrian church meant there for a long time, and then uh, in the middle in the medieval ages it became a mosque, but the tomb was left untouched. But in 2014, unfortunately, the um, the mosque and the tomb itself uh, were blown up. So who is this prophet Jonah? In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we learn a little, about, little bit about him in that we have someone who is a prophet by the name of Jonah who spoke with regards to Jeroboam II. Now, who was Jeroboam? Jeroboam II was a king of the northern kingdom of Israel which would imply that Jonah was likely a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. 2 Kings 14.25, speaking of Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the sea, of the, the, uh, the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath Hefer. So we see that he is a northern kingdom prophet. This is the only other reference known of Jonah in the scriptures. <clears throat> and we can surmise based on the fact that Jonah is dealing with Nineveh. And at this time, at the time uh, of when this most likely was written in the uh, mid-600s before Christ, um, that, and that was before the sacking of the northern kingdom by Nineveh, that we can put two and two, two and two together that this is likely the same Jonah, a northern kingdom prophet. As we look through this book, there are a number of different motifs, as we've read. We can see in here God's salvation of sinners. Nineveh was not only, uh, not only an enemy of the northern kingdom as the capital of Assyria, but Nineveh was also a very violent city. And we see God's salvation of sinners here. And we also see in this 
because of what we saw in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 as such, the salvation of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ. We see one who went under and who came up and who declared uh, the, who declared the need of God. We also see in this the compassion of God for sinners. God's compassion for sinners. Sinners such as you and sinners such as me. And sinners such as all sinners. We can also see how God restores those who, uh, those who would be his people who might rebel against him. We can also see in, in an application that, well, uh, that Jonah's rebellion against God actually continued after he made the proclamation because of his refusal to love his enemies. And so we can see the importance of love for even our enemies in the book of Jonah. There's also Christology present here, as just to mention. Jonah, as we cited in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, serves for us as a type of Christ. For we see Jesus relates the... Jonah going into the belly of the great fish and then being vomited out. I've always thought that was some fun language. And the fish vomited him out. That we see Jesus saying that just as that happened to Jonah, so will I be in the belly of the earth for three days and then rise from the dead. That we we have here what we call typology. That is, Jonah is serving here as a testimony to the coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. And just as Jonah brought reluctantly salvation to his enemies through his proclamation of the need of turning to God, So Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, brought salvation to his enemies. For does not the book, does not the New Testament tell us that while we were once enemies, we have now been reconciled? It does not say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so let us now look at the opening verses, looking at verses 1 through 3, which will be part 1 of what we're calling this section, Runaway Jonah and the Convenient Ship. Runaway Jonah and the Convenient Ship. You may have noticed that we sang some songs about seafaring and such today. It's largely because of this opening idea. This book has a lot to do with the sea and such, and the turmoils of the sea. But in verses 1 through 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So first of all, the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to the, to the prophet Jonah, and he told him something. What did he tell him? He told him, first of all, to arise, and in arising, to go somewhere. And where is it that place he told him to go? He told him to go to Nineveh. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Nineveh is, was the capital of the dreaded Assyrian Empire. Nineveh, was being the capital of Assyria, was a greatly feared place. Assyria at that time was running roughshod over the, what, what we call in history the Near East. We now call today the Middle East. But was running roughshod over the ancient Near East. And was always a threat to Israel and to Judah. And we saw later in history, uh, Judah had become a vassal state of Assyria. That is, they paid homage to Israel for the right to exist. Uh, paid homage to Assyria for the right, for the privilege of existing as a state, as a as a place. Hezekiah rebelled against that, and so Sennacherib came and laid siege to the city. But the Lord delivered delivered J- Jerusalem and Judah. And shortly thereafter, King Sennacherib died. And not too long thereafter, in terms of after Israel, after Judah had been taken captive, uh, <clears throat> I mean, not too long thereafter, the Assyrians were sacked by the Babylonians. And then later, of course, the Babylonians were sacked by the Medes. But Nineveh also served as an agent of judgment for the northern kingdom. But God also judged them for their violence against the northern kingdom. We saw that night. We saw that today. And we also see that in the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum is largely a, an oracle against Nineveh, against Assyria. So I guess you could say Nahum as well. But Nahum. And you know that Nahum is an objective prophet. Because if it wasn't, it would be Nahu. Sorry. But he told him to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, as we mentioned, is, is in, the, in an area in the northern tip of Iraq known as Mosul, is where Nineveh used to be. Now, who were these Assyrians? What was it about them that he told them to go to Nineveh and call out against it? The Assyrians were known as a very violent bunch who did awful things to those whom they conquered. As is common in such things. I mentioned earlier in the book of Nahum, in which their behavior was directly named, and in defi- uh, both directly named and indirectly named, through the judgments that would be returning to them, both stating this is why this is coming to you, and this is what's going to come to you. Stating in what's going to come to you, the very same things that you've been doing are coming right back at you. And so indirectly stating them as well. But Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. 
No end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of courses, uh, corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. That is following, uh, referring to the fact that they uh, were engaged in all sorts of evil and violence in their idolatry, in their pursuit of evil, pursuit of power. The deadly charms of Satan. They were, to put it in in high academic language, a bully. They were the classic bully, so to speak, in terms of the ancient Near East. God does not take violence lightly. I find it interesting, and I, you know, I found myself guilty of this as well, that we will shudder at the idea of sexual immorality, rightly so, but then we will have no problems engaging in watching depictions of terrible violence. And say, well, at least it's not sexual immorality we're watching. But God does not care for violence one bit. He does not care for the destruction of human life by other humans. He uses it for his purposes and his providence. But as we learned, we mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, he says, God takes no, he says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. And so they were a very violent bunch. Some of the judgments named against them include uh, their babies being destroyed. Meaning those were things that they did. You can read the Psalms and see some of the imprecations that are prayed by the psalmist. uh, Saying, may their babies be smashed against the rocks. Those are things the Assyrians did. When it speaks of the horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. One of the things the Assyrians were known for is when they would conquer a place, they would take the captured soldiers and line them up in a line and uh, with their heads facing one another, chariot wheels apart and then just run the chariots over their necks. They were a violent bunch. And as the stronger one, the one that had more power, they used that strength not to help the one who the weaker groups. Rather, they used that strength and that power to subjugate and to destroy. Nineveh, my brothers and sisters, is a microcosm 
of the human race. This is us. This is human proclivity. Nineveh was but one microcosm of the human race. We might say that Nineveh was pre-Nietzscheism. Of using whatever force necessary to assert and to impose one's will on another. Nineveh was a very violent group. And he said to them, said to, to Jonah, call out against it. That is, go to Nineveh and declare, God is going to judge you. You have done evil. We can see that in the very proclamation that he gave. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. That was the call to go warn them of that. Of course, in that warning, because we learn later, it was not merely the passing on of information. It was not merely, oh, just so you know, just so you're aware, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. Just, you know, just so you know. That's not what that was about. It was a warning telling them to repent. Telling them to turn to the God who created the heavens and the earth to trust him. There was an unspoken goal, which was to rescue this violent, evil, horrible bunch from God's judgment. This people who were always at the brink of destroying uh, Jonah's beloved Israel. And Jonah, as we read earlier, knew that full well. And he did not want to go. He's telling Nineveh, he's telling Jonah to warn Nineveh, his sworn enemy of the impending judgment of God. To give them a chance to repent. To give them a chance to turn. Now, Jonah heard this, and Jonah's response says, absolutely, let's go and do this. No, that was not Jonah's response. Jonah's response was to flee. He said, no, I will not go to Nineveh. I will not announce to them this coming judgment. Rather, I will run away. Not only run away, but flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah went and found a convenient ship. A convenient, there, was a, there was a boat right there in Joppa going to Tarshish. You can imagine that what Jonah did is he went to the nearest big port and said, Okay, there's going to be a boat here. I don't care where it's going. I'm getting on it. I'm going away. He found the boat to Tarshish. Take me to Tarshish. I don't, just get me away from here. I am not going to Nineveh. I am not going to be an agent so that Nineveh might be rescued 
who has done countless evil things to us. That is exactly what he was saying. I do not want these, this one who has done evil to me to, and my people to be rescued. And so thinking he could run away from the presence of the Lord, he paid the fare, got on that ship and went away to Tarshish. At the end of verse three, that's where we're left. Verse four, of course, we hear more of the story and how God says, essentially says, no, there is no fleeing from my presence. There is no escaping from my presence. For he is the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including the sea. And he commands the seas, as Jonah and his shipmates learned. There is no escaping from the presence of the Lord. And as we mentioned earlier, of what was Jonah afraid? First of all, he was indeed rebelling. There may have been a sense where he was afraid of what might happen to him in Nineveh, after all. He was an Israelite. And would they receive him or would they destroy him? But the text doesn't tell us that. What it does tell us is that it had to do with the fact that Jonah did not want Nineveh to know the compassion of God. He said, for I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God. And he told God, I knew this would happen. That's why I didn't go. They were a threat to his people. He wanted them to be destroyed. So there was no escaping that. Some things we can learn from this. Again, this is just an opening message, and so we don't want to steal too much future thunder because everything's so tied, tied, uh, uh, tied together. Jonah, in his call to go to Nineveh, he, God was asking him to be poured out as an offering for the sake of his enemy. To be poured out as an offering for the sake of his enemy. When people go and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to hostile lands, people who may want to destroy them because of their confession, they are bringing the love of God to people who want to kill them. And that is exactly what Jonah was called to do. Christ did that for us. It's been said, and I've, I've heard this said before, if we as Christians could just really show people who God really, really is and demonstrate who he really is, and they would just really come flock to him. In reality, that's not what would happen. If God were to appear in our presence in such a way as a human race, that we would not die in all of his beauty and all of his glory. Humanity, because of what happened in the garden, we would not run to him and say, oh, you're so wonderful. We would try to find the nearest weapon we could and try to destroy him. That's the human race. 
demonstrating the fact that's exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. God, what if God was one of us? That song from the 90s asked. He was one of us. We tried it and we destroyed him. But not as an unfortunate martyrdom, but as part of God's plan to redeem us. By our destroying him, he died for our sins. For it is our sins that put him there. And he calls us as well to be poured out for the sake of those who are yet his enemies. To be poured out for the sake of those who do not know him, who do not love him. Not to be as the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who looks at the tax collector and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like one of them. But remembering that we are that tax collector and that we wish to see the other tax collectors come into his rule. Meaning, Well, we are not to ever affirm that which is evil and that which is wrong. We should never be afraid of like our Lord Jesus Christ, of it being said of us, is he not the one who sits and has meals with sinners? After all, he did that for us. He still sits with us who though we are justified who though we are saints we are at the same time sinners and he still sits with us it does not mean that we engage should engage in idolatry or things that might um, affirm uh, evil acts But the gospel is to be indiscriminately shared in word and demonstrated in our deeds, in our labors of love for the enemies of God. It is not God who needs, and we've said this before, But it's so important to remember, it is not God who needs a single one of our good works. He doesn't need any of them. It is our neighbor who needs those good works. And our brother and sister. There is no one I repeat, there is no one for whom we should desire their eternal destruction. Because in doing so, we are saying we should be eternally destroyed too. Because we are no better than those others.
We must not let our temporal circumstances dictate our eternal perspectives. There is nowhere, my brothers and sisters, where we can flee from the Lord. And so just as, as Jonah should have been compelled by the love of God, our Lord Jesus Christ was compelled by the love of God to live and die for us. So let us be compelled by the love of God that we might declare that life and death in our deeds, in our words. To those whom we might be tempted to say, Lord, I thank you. I'm not one of those. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to keep Christ before us in our hearts, in our minds. To remember this good news that came to us, for we were no better than the Ninevites. And we pray that news would come to, we we would hold on to that news. And we would, as appropriate, share that. And share the compassion of Christ with our brothers and sisters. To be good to all as Galatians says, especially to the household of God. And that when we look upon the one who is in great need, that we would be as our Lord Jesus and share your love with them in word and deed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.